Welcome to The Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas. Hello, I'm Bela Musitz, coming to you from upstate New York. I'm a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and business school professor. And coming to you from Münster, Germany, I'm Mike Wasserman, professor of international management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, when Bela and I were on the faculty at Clarkson University, we used to have lots of interesting conversations about how the world is changing and specifically about how innovation and entrepreneurship are changing. We'd do this over a cup of coffee or lunch as time allowed. And about two years ago, I moved to Germany. And then a little bit after that, Bela retired. Uh, but Bela had what I thought was this wacky idea to continue these conversations in the form of a podcast uh, and invite others like you to join in. Uh, I actually thought this was a horrible idea. I, I now don't consider myself a podcast guy. I hate the way my voice sounds uh, when it's recorded. Um, but Bela, as usual, was right. Uh, and we've had a great time so far over the past year or so that we've been doing this. Yeah. So join us each week as we talk with interesting people we've met to share stories, ideas, and insights into innovation, entrepreneurship, and the people that take unconventional paths to find happiness in work and in life. So, Bela, tell us about this week's episode. Thanks, Mike. Before we dive into this week's interview, I just want to remind our listeners that one of the key elements of this podcast is to interview business founders we can all identify with. We've had coffee roasters on the show, software developers, business consultants, cafe and restaurant owners. We are not trying to discuss how to start the next Facebook or Google. We want to bring you stories that you can hopefully will inspire you to realize, hey, I can do that, and then take the next step to start on your business journey. This week's guest is Jackie Ducci. She is the founder and CEO of Ducci & Associates. This is a really interesting interview, Bela, but before we begin, let me take a second to remind our, our listeners that this podcast is brought to you in part by the law firm of Phillips Lytle LLP. And this is a sponsorship that makes a lot of sense to us. Bela, you know this firm well, don't you? I sure do. I have worked with the key entrepreneurship practice partners at Phillips Lytle for over 20 years. Their nationally recognized attorneys take an entrepreneurial approach to legal matters, and they have a long history of success with startup businesses. Phillips Lytle is my go-to team for guiding startup businesses down the path to success. So we're excited to have Phillips Lytle as our show sponsor. You and I both know that they think like entrepreneurs, taking a pragmatic approach to getting things done and spotting issues before they become problems. So if you need good, solid advice starting, funding, or selling a business, whether you're a single-person startup or working on a nine-figure exit, Bela and I confidently recommend the attorneys at Phillips Lytle. Bela, what's the best way for listeners to get in touch with them? So for more information, contact Rich Honan, who is a Phillips Lytle partner. If you are an old-school phone person like Mike and I, you can give Rich a call at 518-618-1225 or... If you are of the generation that prefers online communication, you can reach Rich directly from his firm's website at philipslytle.com. That's P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S-L-Y-T-L-E.com. And it'll be great for us if you let Rich know that you heard about Philips Lytle from listening to the Unconventional Path podcast. All right, with that said, let's jump right into today's interview with Jackie Ducci. Hello, listeners. Today, I'm here with Jackie Ducci. She is the owner of Ducci and Associates uh, and also a very accomplished author, ha uh, recently having written a book called Almost Hired, What's Really Standing Between You and the Job You Want. So you can imagine 
that the business she's in is helping people find jobs and helping companies find great talent to fill those jobs. Welcome to the show, Duch. Uh, welcome to the show, oh, Jeepers. I'm stumbling really bad today, but you know what? We'll leave this in because this is reality radio. Uh, it's uh, yeah, radio. Don't I wish? So, welcome to the show, Jackie. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, sorry about the uh, stumbling I'm doing here, but I'm not sure why I'm uh, all tongue-tied today more than usual. So, Jackie, if uh, if you're at a social event and uh, someone comes up to you and says, "Oh, nice to meet you, Jackie." Uh, Tell me what you do. Uh, how do you answer that question? Sure. So I tell people that I help business owners with any of their challenges that relate to hiring. So I always say I help companies find and keep great people, which is true. You know, traditionally we're a recruiting firm, but I also offer consulting services too. So um, we're kind of like a one-stop shop for all things hiring related. Great. And you started this business how many years ago? I think it's been seven years now. Yeah. Time flies. <laughs> yes, yes. So what sort of inspired you to sort of uh, uh, bridge off on your own? And what were you doing before? Mm-hmm. This is a great story, actually. So um, prior to this company, I was working for another headhunting firm, which was an awesome experience. And it taught me a lot. Um, but I'll never forget, there was one day in my 20s when we were doing kind of like a review, but it was very informal because we were a small company. And in that meeting, my supervisor at the time was kind of going around the room and saying what everybody was good at and not so good at. And when he got to me, he was like, you know, I'm just not really sure that you're that great of a recruiter, but what you're amazing at is business development. And I remember at the time, like being so offended by that at 20 something years old, like, how dare you tell me that I can't recruit, you know, cause I thought I was pretty good and I still think I am. But, um, it was kind of like a lightning bolt moment because I'm like, you know, my strength really is business development and dealing with the clients. And if that's true, I'm going to do better long term taking those skills and building my own business and then maybe hiring really amazing recruiters. Like in the long run, that's going to be a better situation for me. So that was kind of like the impetus to get me to go out on my own. And then within a couple of years from that time, it happened. So it's, it's funny how things work out, but that one moment was really pivotal for me. Well, that's great. You know, oftentimes when I talk to individuals on this podcast, some of them have the, uh, Oh, ha ha moments like that one mm -hmm. and others, it's sort of just sort of evolves and happens. So after you had right. that, after you had that moment, uh, what mm -hmm. were sort of the next steps? What was, what was the process that you went through? Yeah. So it was interesting. I was also going through a lot in my personal life at the time, which included a, a physical move to another state. So in my mind, I was like, you know, let me just get moved and settled. And I was kind of coming back home in a way, like back up to the Northeast. And I thought that would be a perfect way to start my business because I had so many connections there. So it sort of like was all serendipitous and fell into place at the right time. Um, once I got settled personally, I started just reaching out to who I knew. And it was really a networking game and, you know, telling them about the great experience that I had doing recruiting in the D.C. area and now like taking that to my contacts up and down the East Coast. So, you know, it really started from who I knew and then grew from there. And we've been so fortunate to have a lot of repeat business and referral business. So since then, the company's grown sort of organically. But getting started, it was all about who I knew. Yeah. So, Jackie, how big is the business now? How big in terms of client no, base? Yeah, let's say number of employees. 
Um, oh, so our oh, yeah. team is uh, four people right now, plus an intern, so five. Okay. And, you know, most people uh, don't understand how this business works of recruiting. So uh, if, I'm a, if I'm a company and I'm looking for some talent and I called mm-hmm. you up and said, hey, I'm trying to fill this position, uh, walk mm-hmm. me through that process. Sure. So it's different every time, to be honest. It really depends on what the client is looking for, what the level of position. Our strategies are always sort of unique to whatever search we're dealing with. But generally speaking, um, we start with who we know. We have a pretty big database having done this for seven years. So, um, you know, we go through who do we already know in the files that we like, who we feel good representing. If we already know someone who's a good fit, those are the first candidates that we send in. Um, if we feel that we do not have the right fit and that happens most of the time because every search is so unique, um, you know, we just start reaching out. So we're true headhunters. We go after people. We don't post a lot of things online. I think job boards are kind of a joke for the most part anyway. Um, so, you know, we're looking people up on LinkedIn. We're asking people we know for referrals. We're truly targeting people whose background is exactly what our clients are looking for. So I think that makes us different from most recruiting firms to just kind of post and see what comes back. Yes. So I, I know my previous lives, I, I've used uh, recruiting firms a few times. And mm-hmm. oftentimes, uh, I, I use them as a, as, a, as a company. And oftentimes, mm-hmm. um, when I began that process, I sort of had a different vision or idea of the type of person I wanted then. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the things the recruiting firm helped me do was sort of understand what I really need. Yes. Uh, so do you guys do that kind of stuff as well? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked. Cause we're, we're just starting to do more of that now. It's so fascinating to me because I went back a few months ago and just analyzed every placement we've ever done. And our track record is really excellent. But, you know, every firm has those ones that you just kind of kick yourself and go, oh, that didn't work out so well. So why did that happen? And it's so interesting because in the cases where we took more control and kind of explained to our client, this is what we think you should be hiring as opposed to what they were asking for. It's like, we don't always know what's best for us, right? (laughs) And I use a lot of like relationship analogies because they work. So it's like the friend that you have that, you know, always keeps picking the wrong guy over and over and then wonders why the marriage doesn't last. It's like the same kind of thing. So in the cases where we kind of took more control and said, look, we, we think you need to look at this prototype as opposed to what you originally thought. Those are the placements that always last longer and wind up being a really good fit. So um, that's why I'm starting to branch more into consulting now. So even for companies that maybe don't want to pay us to place people, I can train them to hire better on their own, which is so exciting. Yes. So if I'm a company and I, and I have a couple of, of positions to fill and I'm mm-hmm. going out to interview various different recruiting firms. What are the types of things that I should be looking for? Um, in terms of how to select a firm? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, some of it comes down to gut feeling. You have to have a connection with the firm. I think it's like anything else. People do business with people they like. <laughs> so um, you have to like them. Um, you have to trust them. I think that, you know, I've heard over and over, in, unfortunately, in the recruiting industry, there are some not so ethical people and a lot of firms that are just about cranking out numbers and not necessarily listening to their clients. So, um, 
you know, I would ask for references. I would talk to other clients that have used the firm. I think that's always the best way to kind of know what it's like to really work with someone in the real world. So, um, yeah, do your diligence and, and be selective. And also, I think, you know, don't be afraid to ask for a non-exclusive agreement and work with multiple firms. Um, that's something that I've always been willing to do because my position is that if we're really the best at what we do, which we believe we are, why wouldn't I compete against other firms? If you're my client and you want to work with somebody else simultaneously, then I should be okay with that if I know what I'm doing. Right. So, um, yeah. And are there firms that specialize in sort of different, uh, uh, industrial areas or different types of skill sets or different types of levels? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, you can find a firm out there for pretty much anything. Um, you know, we're a little unique in that we do have a niche in hospitality. We do a lot of, um, we have a lot of hotel clients, but you know, we do a ton of professional services and just infrastructure. So we're a little more general, I think, than, um, a lot of firms out there, but I mean, if you're in a particular industry and you're looking for someone who only does what you do, you can find them. Okay. And is there advantages of, of hiring sort of a, more of a generalist or someone who's much narrower? Um, that's actually a really good question that I get asked a lot. <laughs> I think it could go either way. I'll give you an example. Um, we've had a couple law firms come to us in the past year or so to, to fill placements. And prior to that, we had never done legal before. So we were a little bit like, well, I don't know how this is going to go. And we were competing against other legal recruiters. And we actually got two really large placements. And I think it was somewhat luck of the draw, somewhat we know what we're doing. But our network was different from the other firms. So sometimes that can work to Mm -hmm. their advantage. Sometimes it can work to ours. And that's why I say, you know, work with more than one firm because you just never know who knows who. And all it takes is that one candidate. Right, right. So uh, one way to think about this is different firms go fishing for candidates in different ponds. Yes. Yeah. And they know different people. I mean, networking is everything. So it's just a matter of who's going to happen to know that right person. And you just never know. So Jackie, if I remember correctly, uh, there are two types of uh, search firms. There are retained search firms and there are contingency search firms. Uh, can mm-hmm. you explain the difference between those? Sure. And some firms actually do both. They'll have two different contracts, but um, it's it's really a matter of kind of how they're paid. So a contingent firm runs a search and they're paid at the end, assuming that there's a successful placement. And then if you're running a retained search, you're usually paid up front, but it's it's an exclusive agreement where you're being paid and then you kind of do the work after the fact. Okay, so that's very helpful. And uh, are there advantages or disadvantages to each of those? I would say so. And I think it's just a matter of preference. Um, you know, my school of thought is always that, you know, having multiple firms working on your behalf on a contingent basis, at least is going to get you more candidates and you're tapping into different pools of talent based on who their networks are. So to me, that's to the employer's advantage. Um, I think the logic behind a retained search is that you're getting one firm really focused on you, giving you everything they've got. So um, if they know the right person, that's amazing, uh, but they may not. So you can be disappointed, I guess, in either situation. Um, so you just have to go with what you're comfortable with. Oh, great. Now, from a, a an employee's perspective, is there an advantage to one or the other? Um. Not necessarily. I mean, from an employee's perspective, they should be on the radar of 
as many search firms as possible because, <laughs> again, their networks are different. So your odds of getting placed are better um, and you can't control how they operate. So um, I'm not really sure that it matters from the candidate's point of view. Okay, great. That was very helpful. Thanks. So when you're uh, looking for a candidate for uh, to fill a particular position, uh, what type of uh, diligence, screening, et cetera, do you do on the candidate? So when you present those to me as the owner of a business, what sort of mm-hmm. work have you done b- before they get shipped off to me? Sure. So it's always, you know, more than one conversation with my team. We like to do at least two interviews, usually with two different members of our team, because we think it's really interesting how candidates will sometimes um, give a different impression to one person versus another, or they'll give conflicting information to one person versus another. So we've just caught people in some really strange lies and different things by having, you know, multiple calls with different team members. Yes. You know, if, if two two of our executive team uh, ladies like someone, it's usually a really good person. If If they've got mixed feelings, then it's something we need to talk more about. So always at least two interviews. We do reference checks. It's amazing to me how many companies do not do reference checks. You can get so much good information by doing that. Um, so that's always part of what we do. Sometimes that's not till later in the process. Um, when we know a client at least has some degree of interest in someone, but it's a piece of diligence I think is super important. And, um, you know, we just really go through their background with a fine tooth comb again, by actually causing or forcing someone to talk you through every step of their career. You get a lot of information about not only what they've done, but their needs, their wants, and and that helps us kind of match them appropriately to our clients. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. So are there uh, challenges or, or more, more challenges in recruiting people for small startup firms versus, you know, recruiting somebody for an IBM or a General Electric? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I think, no, not really. I mean, everything that we do is so unique and every every description that's given to us by a client, no matter how big they are, um, is just so different. We feel like we're kind of starting from square one every single time we get a new search. I mean, I think the only thing with the bigger companies is that they have more brand awareness. So that can help or hurt depending on how the reputation is. Um, and then when you're hiring for smaller companies, like we may try to sell candidates on going to a small company and they've never heard of this firm before. So then we have to do a lot more selling to kind of get them, not that we're selling, but you know what I'm saying? Like we have to give them more information about kind of what they would be signing up for. Um, but we always tell people just go take a meeting because you really don't know if the chemistry is there or if you like the culture and all that until you actually show up and see what it's all about. Right, right. How has uh, how has sort of the recruiting landscape changed uh, from the uh, I'm kind of talking about companies right now? And then at some point in time here in the conversation, I want to switch to sort of the 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 employees perspective. But from a company's mm-hmm. perspective, how has the landscape changed for them in, in finding employees, retaining employees? Yeah, they're just struggling like more so than ever. It's hard. I mean, hiring is always difficult. I mean, it just is. But with unemployment so low, it's just a whole different level of difficult. I mean, what I hear all the time is companies say they used to be able to just put ads out on LinkedIn or Monster or wherever, and they would get a ton of applications. And it was just a matter of, all right, we need to sift through and 
find the right person. And now they're just getting nothing or they're getting applications that just people with backgrounds have nothing to do with what the position is for. So it's just junk. So it's tough. It really is. Um, you know, we also recruit for construction. That's one of our industries, um, that we specialize in and there, you know, you see a lot fewer young people going into industries like that now. So there's just a talent shortage period, let alone the fact that unemployment's low anyway. So it, it's tough out there. It, it really is. It really is. So that sounds like it, it's sort of uh, an advantage to the, the job seeker right now. So if you're looking for a, a job or looking to switch jobs or, or find a, a new, better opportunity, mm-hmm. it's a pretty good time to be doing that. It's a good time to be doing that if you're a savvy job seeker, which is a perfect segue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. What is a savvy... What does a savvy job seeker mean? Uh, the number one thing in my mind, when I say a savvy job seeker, I mean someone that understands that they need to convey relevance to an employer. Like if you're applying for things, you need to make it clear what you have done in your background that actually is relevant to the position that they have posted and why you're a good fit. It's incredible to me how many people will just craft a resume and they'll send the same version out everywhere And they're like sitting there questioning why nobody's calling them. (laughs) It's like, I'm looking at your resume and I don't see the fit. Like, how is the employer going to see the fit? So that's just so important. And do you help? Do you help clients with that? Um, We help candidates with that if and when we believe they are a fit for something. Um, We have placed people that like I can tell sometimes just by where someone's worked or something about them when I interview them. Like it's a gut feeling. I know they would be amazing for a certain client or a certain, you know, role, but in the resume that they've given me, like, I wouldn't think that it's a fit unless I spoke with them. So in those cases, that's when I say, we need to do an overhaul. We need to highlight this. We need to delete this. And just, you can make somebody look like two completely different people on paper by doing things like that. And then we've literally had placements this way and, and they've worked out really well, but you know, again, it, it takes an expert in the middle to kind of show both sides why it's a good match in order for them both to see it. Yes, yes. Uh, so how has, uh, what, what are the things that uh, employees are looking for these days? What, what are the things that they get excited about? And what are the things that are sort mm-hmm. of turnoffs for them when it comes to jobs? Interesting question. Yeah, I find it's different for everyone. But one thing I'm noticing across the board is that Everyone seems to be really tuned into benefits nowadays, like the miscellaneous benefits, like the work remote opportunities, the casual Fridays, like the bell and whistle kind of things that just never really entered the dialogue several years ago. Um, And I think some of that is because unemployment is low. And so companies are throwing more of that stuff out there to attract people. So it's just, you know, a piece of information that people are always seeming to look for. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, that's been interesting. So what are, what are some of the biggest mistakes that companies make when they're interviewing somebody or they're, they're trying to, you know, get someone to, to come work for them? Yeah. So many things. I mean, I just, I wrote an article about this recently. Um, the timeline is a huge thing. So a lot of times I will see employers drag their feet thinking that they're doing their diligence, like they could have an amazing candidate be the first one to interview. 
and they're like, wow, we really like them, but they're the first one through the door. So we want to just give it more time and talk to more people. And it's like, oh my God, you're going to lose the perfect person. You know, sometimes your, your best fit is the first one through the door. And if you wait and drag your feet, somebody else is going to snatch them up if they're really as good as you think they are. And then you've lost and you're scrambling. So um, I think not being afraid to pull the trigger when the first person or the right person shows up, whether it's beginning, middle or end of the process, just do it. Um, that's huge. I see a lot of companies lose good people that way. Um, another thing is just trusting your gut instinct. I hear employers all the time say, you know, they beat themselves up over the bad hires that they've made over the years. And, and nine times out of 10, they'll tell me, you know, I knew something was a little off about so-and-so or something was bothering me, but I did it anyway because their background was perfect. And then they regret it later. So I think deep down, like we all know when we tune in what's best for us and for our companies. And when you ignore that little voice, you can get into trouble. So those are two of the things I see happen a lot. Yeah. And now what about from the, the employee side, what are, what are the big mistakes besides not having a good resume that, that really addresses what the, what the business Mm -hmm. is looking for? What are the mistakes they make? You know, I think I see a lot of people now, especially younger people just willing to like haphazardly go through their, career like then it's like shiny ball syndrome like something pops up that looks interesting oh i'll just go over here oh i'll just go over there and it's like you can only do so much of that before you start to look like a real flake and by the time you hit 30 nobody's gonna want you because you've jumped jobs seven times in your 20s so i think um what job seekers need to do more of is just self-reflecting and getting clear about what do they actually want their track to look like? Because every decision you make early is going to set you up for something later on, whether it's good or bad. So just thinking about what you want, what works for you, what doesn't work for you, and then like sticking to those points when you're applying for things. Like don't just pick a bad fit because you're hating your job currently. Like, you know, not jumping for the sake of jumping. Right, right. Are there are there parts of the country where it's really difficult to recruit people to? Yes, 100 percent. We struggle with this all the time because we work with hotels. We've got, you know, clients in literally all 50 states. And so there are certain ones that call us and we just go, oh, no, I'm not going to mention specific locations, but certain ones where we go, oh, gosh, it's going to be so hard to get somebody to move there. Um, so yeah, that can be a huge challenge, but that's why we get paid to do what we do. Cause it's not easy. So yeah. Is, is that a, uh, metropolitan versus rural challenge or is it, is it different? Generally? Yes. Um, cities are easier to convince people to go to also the talent pool is just larger in cities. So our odds of finding someone already in New York or already in South Florida or DC or wherever. Um, it's just greater that the right person's already going to be there and they're not going to have to relocate. So it just makes our job a lot easier. Um, I'm also seeing a real trend now of people moving South. You know, we have an office in the New York area and we do a lot of business there, but it's, we make contact with a lot of candidates who say, well, I'm in New York now, but I'm really trying to get to the Carolinas or to Florida and, you know, people are kind of sick of the brutal winners, myself included. So yes. I can't really blame them. Yeah. Well, that yeah. might mi- that migration has been going on for 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 quite a while. Yes. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. The um, in are there? What about relocation? How how do how has that changed? You know, I can remember. 
you know, back, uh, I entered the workforce in 1975 when I got out of grad school. So I've been in it a while. Mm-hmm. And relocation was something that in certain careers was just part of the landscape. That's what you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. How have people's attitudes changed about that? Um, from the employer side, they seem to be more open to it now than ever before because I think because of this talent shortage, they have the mentality of, well, if you find the right person elsewhere and they're willing to move here, you know, we, we still want them. Whereas years ago they would have said, oh, it's too much effort. So they seem to be more open, also more open to work remote or partial work remote kind of arrangements for especially senior level positions, because if somebody's a real piece of talent, the company doesn't want to lose that opportunity just because they're forcing someone to like move their family across the country. Right. Um, so yeah, I think definitely more open and candidates too. I think as long as they don't have families that are really rooted, you know, it's hard once you've got kids and they're in school and all that. But, um, I see a lot of people who are kind of past that phase of life and maybe married, maybe not. And they just can pick up and move a little more easily. So I do see a lot of that now. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like companies are, are, are more flexible in, in those kind of areas. Well, they're, yeah, they're having to be. <laughs> yeah. Just because of the supply and demand situation. Yeah. It, absolutely. Yeah. They're having to be, I mean, the smart ones just kind of get that that's how it works. And the other thing too, is that I'm seeing more generous uh, packages to relocate people than in previous years. So they understand to make that happen, they have to kind of step it up. So, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, what about this notion of uh, uh, working remotely? Uh, mm-hmm. is, is that a trend? I know, my, for example, my son, uh, who, who's a, a computer person, uh, he works mm-hmm. from home four days a week, and one day a week he drives about an hour to go to the office. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they have a fair, I think about half the employees in that organization work remotely, uh, mm-hmm. some from very far away. So how, how's that trend changing your job? And how's that, mm-hmm. you know, what it's, what's it, how's it impacting businesses and the recruiting process? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. This whole work remote thing, my opinion is that it's very industry driven, like certain industries, it's easy to have work remote people who can do their job effectively. Others that are more like old school, like construction is a good example. You got to have people in the office. You know what I mean? They got to be there in teams looking at drawings and whatever. So it really is an industry thing. Um, in terms of how it's changing our job, I don't know that it really is other than enabling us to look nationwide for positions, which certainly helps, you know, the the bigger the pool we can pull from, the better. Um, but yeah, I think that's a trend that we're going to see continue to be on the rise. Um, even in cities, you know, like I used to live in D.C. and the traffic, anyone who's there knows it's absolutely horrendous. And so you don't want to be losing two, three plus hours a day sitting in the car and employers understand that it just doesn't make any sense if you can avoid it. So are, I think we'll see more. Of it. Yeah. Are, are employers uh, more sensitive these days to the work, what's called the work life balance? Um, I would say so generally speaking um, again, that's a little bit industry specific, but yes, I mean, I think it just makes sense that if your employees are happy, they're going to do a better job for you and culture is really important and all of that. So yeah, I mean, I would say I've seen them be more sensitive to all of that in say the past couple years than previously, for sure. 
So if I'm if I'm interested in in working for a particular organization and and they've made me an offer, and now mm-hmm. now we're into the negotiation process, mm-hmm. uh, how does how does one sort through sort of what's negotiable and what's not? Well. People overcomplicate this all the time, and you'd be amazed how many deals fall apart in the negotiation phase that should not come apart. So my advice to both sides, candidates and employers, really is you've got to know before you even have the the right employer or the right candidate sitting in front of you, you've got to go into the search knowing like what you're willing to budge on and what you're not. Just what are your bookends? Because the answers are different for everyone. For candidates, like really know what what's your target salary? Like what's your high? What's your low? And then that way, when you get into negotiations, it's it's easier to be more practical and less emotional about it. Um, it's like either it's going to match up or it's not. And it's not personal. The other thing candidates really need to understand when it comes to salary is that companies budget for roles. They don't pay people. It's like everyone gets so offended when they feel like the number isn't right or something like that. It's like, If you're applying for an assistant director, you can't come in making more money than the director. (laughs) Like there's there's a budgeted range. So it's not about you. But there are times where the numbers just don't match up and that's okay, And it's just not the right fit. And you move on. So am I making sense? It's like just knowing what your own parameters are beforehand can just eliminate a lot of BS. Yes. Now, does does a recruiting firm like yours sort of act as the go between during those negotiation processes or, or? Yes all the time. Like, yes, <laughs> because I don't want deals to fall apart then. <laughs> sure. sure. Um, but you know, if we've done our job, like we know by that point that things should come together. Cause if I talk to a candidate that I know is way out of range or has expectations that my client can't meet, we're never going to present them in the first place because it's just a waste of everyone's time. So if we've gotten to the point where they've received an offer, things should work unless someone does something really crazy and inappropriate. So um, it's my job to kind of help both sides understand where the other is coming from mm-hmm. and keep emotions just kind of at a sizzle. Yeah. <laughs> and then hopefully help it all come together. So what's the number one thing that that blows deals up? Oh, wow. It might be salary negotiations, actually. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, I mean... Either that or counter offers. And this is something that I've seen happen a lot this past year, again, with low unemployment. A good candidate is being tugged at from all sides. So even if they find this wonderful new job and they accept an offer, their current employer is not going to want to lose them. And we see this a lot where it's like they put in their notice and the employer just says, what can I do to keep you? I'll do anything. And then because it's the company they already know versus the sure. unknown, they wind up staying. So we actually, that's my number one answer right now. We've seen a lot of deals blow up over counters recently. It's yeah. very frustrating, but understandable. Yeah. And again, that seems to be uh, one of the, one of the side effects of uh, low unemployment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because that employer that already has them knows that if they lose them, they're going to be very difficult to replace. So it's easier to just pay them more, do whatever it takes to keep them on board than to be stuck with nothing. Yeah. If uh, so, let's switch a little bit to your book. So you a number of years ago, you wrote a book. Uh, Tell us about that a little bit. Yeah. So it was just um, about one year ago, actually. Um, I wrote a book. It's called Almost Hired. 
what's standing between you and the job you want. And I wrote it because having spoken with so many, probably thousands of candidates throughout my career, it's just incredible to me how much disconnect there is between job seekers and employers and job seekers don't understand what employers are looking for. So I really wrote this book going from every stage of the hiring process, from thinking about what you want to apply for all the way through accepting an offer and taking a new job and just explaining the employer's perspective at every phase. So as a job seeker, it's like pulling back the curtain. Everybody's always like, I don't understand what these companies are thinking and how they make their decisions. All the answers are in this book. <laughs> so uh-huh. if you want to learn more about that, um, it's really just, you know, I've been a fly on the wall for so many years in so many hiring situations. So just to be able to help people understand the other side, um, that's why I wrote it. Oh, great. And it's available on Amazon, I, I see. It is. So it I is. will, uh, for all you listeners, I will have a link in the show notes. Uh, to the to Amazon and where you can uh, get the book. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we've been going at this now over a half hour, and uh, so I want to respect your time and start wrapping things up. So, uh, what mm-hmm. would your uh, top tips be uh, for companies who are mm-hmm. looking for talent? Well. Um, I can't give too much away because I'm doing a training now that people are going to pay for, <laughs> for that information. So, <laughs> um, I'll give you a couple more. Yeah. Give, give um, us some teasers. All right. Um, not overlooking negativity. If you talk to a candidate and you're getting a whiff of negativity from them, um, uh, maybe because they are speaking poorly about a previous employer, their current employer, a coworker, anything like that. Um, it is a huge red flag. And I always say negative people are negative in general. And if they bash one company, they will bash yours. Mm. They're likely to be cancerous to your company. It's just, it is so dangerous to let people like that through the door for so many reasons. I don't care how good their background is. (laughs) It will not be worth it to you um, if they damage your reputation. So um, that's something that's often overlooked that I think is hugely important. Yeah. So always pay attention to that. That's really good advice because I've, in all the various different folks I've talked to, uh, they've all talked about attitude and mm-hmm. how attitude trumps everything. <laughs> and, yes. And fundamentally, that, I does. think that's what you're saying also, right? If you got to have the right attitude. It, it permeates every level of the company too. I mean, when you let a bad apple in and they're cancerous to the company, I mean, it's going to destroy the morale of good people who then are not going to want to stick around. So I think what I'm saying is I don't think people understand the impact of that. Yes. It's like, oh, don't let a negative person through the door, big deal. But it actually really is a big deal. Yeah. And especially for smaller companies, it can hugely impact other people and, and a lot of different things. So it, it's very important. Yeah, great, great. Uh, did you have more for more, more big top tips for companies? Um, I can give you one more. Let me think. Um, not getting so stuck on a resume that you overlook other aspects of the person. This is the other thing, especially now when it's so hard to find people with the background that these companies are looking for. Um, they'll get the one perfect resume and they'll get so excited about the person. It's like they've almost decided they want them before the person even interviews. Mm. So then they might come in and maybe they're not a great culture fit or maybe their needs are not really aligned. Something else is off, but then they miss that red flag because they're just so excited about the resume. So always remembering to 
evaluate people in three dimensions and taking that all into account when you make your decisions. Well, that's great. Great advice. Now, what about, uh, mm-hmm. what about for job seekers? What are your top tips for job seekers? Mm. Well, the number one is the relevancy, always conveying that. Um, the self-awareness is really big. I know we kind of touched on that, but I think especially for young people, I have a lot of like college kids coming to me all the time saying, what can they do to set themselves up properly going forward? And, you know, not enough emphasis is placed, I think, on self-awareness when you're young. It's really about figuring out, like, who are you? What do you want? Not It's not even career. It's about, like, all the miscellaneous stuff. Like, do you want to be in a big company versus a small company? What kind of people do you like to be around? Um, where do you want to live? Like, these are the questions that I feel like parents, teachers, whatever, are not asking enough. And if you're really clear about who you are and what you want, the job will kind of fall into place or be more likely to easily fall into place. So stop worrying about, you know, what college you're going to and what, you know, I don't know. It's just there's a bigger picture (laughs) I think is really important. Yeah. So that's big. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Excellent advice. Uh, So, so Jackie, is there any questions that I should have asked you that I didn't? Oh, um, that's pretty thorough. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Great interview. No, I don't think so. That was a really good overview of both sides. And um, I can't think of anything else. Well, great. Well, thank you very much for being a guest on the show, Jackie. Uh, well, and, thank you. Uh, it's been uh, really fun. I've learned a lot. And uh, thank you very much for being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Hey, Mike. Uh, what did you think of that uh, conversation with Jackie? I thought uh, one of the things that really uh, brought into focus for me is the importance of human capital uh, in all businesses and in particularly in startup businesses. What did you think? Agreed. I mean, I think you and I have both seen so many startups struggle because they didn't have a good handle on on human capital. Um, you know, obviously, I think companies that are small and just starting don't have the wherewithal to hire uh, an HR professional, right, to kind of handle all their people management stuff. But I would argue that's the critical time that you really need that good guidance on on staffing, on, on recruiting, on selecting, uh, on negotiating the salary package, right, on uh, training, employee development, all these things that are so critical. And most startups don't have anybody that really has in-depth knowledge. And that's where Jackie kind of has this cool business model, right? So she said she works both with startups and with big companies, but somebody like her um, can come in and really help a startup grow their human capital in a neat way. So I think that this is a really critical um, notion uh, for entrepreneurs. Really, if you don't have expertise in HR, don't try to fake it. Don't go online and say, oh, I can look this up and do this. You'll make a lot of mistakes. And we've seen time and time again where companies made big hiring mistakes. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I've used uh, recruiters uh, many times in my previous lives, and I think one of the great value adds that they had was ap- actually helping uh, myself and, and, and the organization focus in on exactly what we were looking for. And, and oftentimes, what we thought we were looking for was not quite, <laughs> quite correct, and they helped us sort of understand the skill set we wanted, not just the skills but the cultural fit, the personality fit, all of those factors. Uh, and we weren't really thinking of those as, as an organization. We were trying to fill a critical need and we were in a rush, et cetera. And, and they sort of helped us realize, hey, take your time here. Make sure you understand the skill set you want and what the personality fit needs to be, 
what the characteristics of that person needs to be, and then we'll go find them. And um, that was, the, to me, oftentimes the big piece of the value add uh, that they brought to the table. Yeah, totally agree. Um, it's just, it's, it's something that people will say, okay, I'll go and get a template off the internet and write a job description, and I'll use that to make an ad, and I'll send the ad out. But as Jackie was saying, the world doesn't work like that so much anymore, right? Gone are the days where you can put an ad in the classified section, right, and get 100 resumes. Um, or even sending a message on LinkedIn and posting a job posting there and hope to get a whole bunch of resumes from a diverse group of people that are qualified and that can help you. It A lot of times now it takes a more detailed approach, a more active approach to getting the person that has the right mix of knowledge and skills and is a good fit with the culture of, of, of the organization. So I really, I really like this, this kind of idea. And, you know, she gets it because she was an entrepreneur. And this is another person that didn't start out as an entrepreneur, but worked for a small company, gained the experience to see how a small company uh, should run, what, what is good to do and what's not good to do. And then she took that knowledge and went out on her own. And I really think that young people who might be in university right now are thinking about this or in high school or whatever and say, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur. A nice way to gain that knowledge cheaply, right? Um, without investing your own money, without investing um, so much is to go work for a small company and see what it's like for better or for worse. You'll get some good things and some bad things out of it, but you'll really get some hands-on knowledge, network, learn the business. Um, and, and it makes it a lot easier, I think, to go launch your own startup and found your own business um, a few years later when you have access to capital and you've got a reputation and you can easily bring in people to help you. Yeah, you know one of the one of the great things about doing this podcast with you, Mike, is we've done you know well over sixty of these now, and it it really has helped me see all the various different ways there are to be an entrepreneur, whether it's you know roasting coffee beans or starting your own uh, HR recruiting firm like Jackie did. Um, there's all these various different paths. There's no one single recipe for doing it, and and there's lots and lots of different opportunities. So if, if you have the drive and you're willing to take that first step, you know, you can do it. And uh, I think that's one of the great things about the people we've talked to is that they've all had different approaches. Uh, they've all come from different walks of life and they've all uh, been able to build successful businesses and sort of, you know, live the life that they want to live, which I think is, is one of the great things about uh, what we can do here. Yeah, totally agree, Bill. And, you know, it's interesting because I'm sure this happens to you too, but people, students come to me or people who want me to do a workshop or whatever for them. And they're like, oh, just give me like the 10 steps I need to be a successful entrepreneur. And it just doesn't work that way, right? Um, there isn't one one way that guarantee, it's guaranteed to work. Um, everybody f uses a different path. Maybe there's some common tools that we can teach you um, that you can mix and match from and you can adapt to your own interests and to the context that you're doing. But it's very much what we call a contingency-based approach. Uh, so you have to learn a bunch of different tools and, and really train your mind to look for opportunities and to build networks. But it, everybody's path to success looks different. I really think that's important uh an important point that you make Bela, and it's something that i struggle with especially here in germany where everybody there's a tendency for like the students to like something very structured and right clear steps um and i have to really battle with them in a caring loving way right to say look entrepreneurship is really about ambiguity at its heart that there's a lot of uncertainty in becoming an, an entrepreneur 
And you need to figure out ways to roll with that to say, yeah, here's an areas where I can be structured and follow a clear path and imitate or whatever you want to do to build this structure. And others, you got to pivot, you got to respond, you got to be fast, nimble. Um, and it's an interesting kind of combination. Um, you know, it was funny, the, the story that Jackie told about how she started the business, right? She got that re- really negative feedback as a young recruiter that she wasn't very good at it. And she was like, Ugh, right? And I've seen that moment. You know, I've had that happen to me and I've seen that in other people. And all of a sudden you turn a very negative feeling and a very crappy feeling, right, into this moment to open your eyes and say, hey, there are some other ways to do this. And maybe this is one of those moments that can really help me understand what paths are the best for me to follow. So I thought that was really kind of cool. Open, open to criticism, took it to heart, and used it to her advantage. That's right. And, and made that a pivotal, a pivotal moment in her life. Yep. Yep. Could have used it to go to be negative and to turn hostile, and right? But, but used it as a positive. So I thought that was great. Um, so that was kind of cool. I also liked... Um, the idea of that she talked about about being reflective and using self-awareness to craft a strategy, right? What type of company do you want to work at? What industry? What city? What level of responsibility? Do you want to work by yourself or as part of a team? Do you want to be client-facing or not? And use that to become a savvy job seeker, right? This idea of having it doesn't have to be one path, right? It could be, it could be I'm interested in three types of career options or three types of paths, right? But as long as you can enunciate that, right, you can help a recruiter help you or you can make that LinkedIn profile better or you can use that to network when you're meeting people uh, at, a, at a cocktail party or an industry event um, to really clearly state, hey, these are my interests. This is what I want to do with my career and give those people an opportunity to help you in a clear way. Yeah, agreed. Agreed very, very much, Mike. Yeah. Uh, what about her... Uh, uh, comments on uh, negotiations. Great advice. I loved her term, knowing the bookends, right? And her advice to take the emotion out of it by doing your homework, know the minimum that you will settle for and know the maximum. Um, you know, they, if you if you're read getting to yes and you've taken a negotiation class, you know the term BATNA, right? Your best alternative to a negotiated agreement, right? So know these things going in and you can take the emotion out and do a better job. But the other thing I loved about what she said is, hey, let me help you with this, right? If you're a right. job seeker and, and you've got somebody else, let me help you negotiate because I can st- ask both sides and I can kind of, I don't like to say insert herself in the middle, but act as that non-emotional broker to try to find both sides to get this ZOPA, this zone of potential agreement together so you can have a much greater likelihood of making a deal that everybody can be happy with. Right, right, exactly. You know? And if everybody's right. honest, if you get to the point where things break down, you shouldn't have you shouldn't have been in the pool in the first place, right? If this is like, oh, I, I need to make one hundred fifty thousand, and this job pays fifty, what are you doing applying for the job anyways, right? Exactly. That's nope. another place where a recruiter can help. Yep. Know the norms in the industry. This the average pay for this job in this region is this. You can find, and a good recruiter will tell you that. But you can find that out for yourself. Right? There's lots of resources on the internet about average salaries at different companies for different types of jobs. Yep, absolutely. So yeah, great, great advice on negotiations, great advice on the, what, the, where an HR consultant or a recruiting consultant, however you want to frame it, can help you. Um, yeah, and then, you know, the last thing that really stuck me uh, that you talked about with Jackie was her approach to negativity. Uh, and I think we've both seen the same thing, uh, that 
it's a culture eater. You know, we've talked a lot on this podcast about culture and human capital. And this was a nice way to bridge all those things together that, you know, nothing, sorry, nothing craps on culture more than negative people, right? That if you're uh, any kind of organizational leader, not necessarily at the top, but any kind of team lead, any kind of person that wants to lead from the bottom and you want to make a positive cultural change, right? Nothing will stymie that like a negative person. So I love that. You know, if people are, are, you're getting these strong cues that the person's negative in a job interview, that's a, a sign for me that it might not be a cultural fit, you know? Yeah, agreed. Agreed. I think that cultural stuff is really, really important. Um, and it, and it, it can, it can take an organization down if you're not careful. Yep. But I also have seen plenty of evidence. I mean, I think you want to try not to hire those people if you can't, but I've also seen where people's life situations change and they become negative. I've seen that a lot. Um, and I've also seen people who are negative with good coaching and good managing, right. And good leadership become positive again. Sometimes it's not related to work, but sometimes just, hey, do you realize how negative that sounds? Do you realize when you say things like this that it has this impact on others around you? And I think a good manager in a closed-door conversation can turn people on. I've done it with colleagues, right, that I don't even manage to say, hey, you know, this is the third time you've brought something like this up in a meeting, and it really brings the rest of the team down. It brings the colleagues down. Do you, I, don't, I don't know if you're doing that on purpose, but I just wanted to give you that info and that feedback because people are talking about it. And three-quarters of the time, at least people are like, Oh my gosh, I didn't mean it that way. Right. 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 Self-awareness. Or the other quarter, a, yeah, it's awareness. Big, or the other quarter of the time, it's like, yeah, I know, and I think this sucks. I'm like, well, do you realize that the way there might be other ways to change this, right, than to just be negative about it? So I think that there's ways, I mean, I, I wouldn't be so strong to her to say, never hire a person where you get a, a sense of negativity. But I think as a manager, it needs to be something that's on your radar screen and something that you can use to develop your the people that report to you or just to be a good colleague, just to say, hey, yeah. heads up, right? This is coming across this way. Don't know if you mean it like this or not. Yeah, and I and I think good organizations that I've I've seen and I've been part of take an active role in that. It's not a passive and reactive role. They take an active role in sort of, of building that type of energy within an organization. Yep. And if you see a change in somebody, ask if everything's okay. I mean, this is not so typical in Germany, but it's more typical in the U.S. But ask somebody if they're doing okay. If you notice all of a sudden people are being really negative, a lot of times it's a signal there's something else going on. It might be a kind of a call for help, right? So I think, you know, if it's somebody you care about, it's a, it's a good thing to say, hey, is everything going okay? Let's check in. Right. Right. There's right, nothing wrong exactly. with that. All right. Sometimes there's a much bigger reason. Yeah. So just things to think about, things that we've learned, I think, both of us, the sometimes the hard way. Right. Um, from from mistakes that we've made. But but really important stuff. All right. Should All right. we wrap this one up, Mike? I totally think that we should wrap this up. So listeners, thanks again for joining us in another podcasting adventure. Uh, we hope you found the last hour interesting and thought-provoking. And as usual, we have a couple of small requests. First is if you have questions about what we've discussed, uh, suggestions about topics, or some potential guests we might want to bring on in the future, we always love to hear from you. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And if you like what we're doing, hit the thumbs up, the like, the subscribe, whatever it is that your podcast app uses to provide positive feedback, and that would be great. Uh, if you really want to be radical, a short review is always appreciated. And of course, if you know others that might find us interesting, please pass along our info to them. So that's it for this week. Thank you for spending time with us. 
We look forward to you joining us for our next episode. Signing off from upstate New York. See you next week, Mike. Sounds good, Bella. I'm going to be prototyp, uh, not prototypical, stereotypical, and go get a pretzel and a beer. So uh, from Minster, Germany, have a great week.